The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 12, and I'm reading from verses 9 to 43. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come, for the Son of Man is to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground, earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice from heaven, then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said it it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So the word, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled: "Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said. 
He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Over these last few weeks we've been uh, looking at John's Gospel with a a, uh, pretty obvious motive. We've wanted to look at Christ up close, see him afresh, see him as he is actually presented in these scriptures. And part of the problem in reading a gospel like the way we're reading this gospel is that we're so used to the traditions of the church that we can be blinded, we can assume that we know what these passages are about and and it's a time like this that we need to slow down and actually see what is going on in these narratives and in seeing that we get a glimpse of the Lord afresh and who he is and we also... uh, uh, have a, uh, an, an opportunity to revise those traditions and those assumptions which we've grown up with. One of those is to do with this, this triumphal entry story. And uh, as a child of the church, I can remember being reminded to bring along some branches to a particular Sunday school pageant as a small child. And this was a, uh, a happy event. We're going to look at the triumphal entry in Sunday school and we would all wave our branches and parade around the church at some particular time. I don't know if they'd still do that. Is that... This is just my experience. <laughs> oh, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> things were different back then. <laughs> and, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's that sort of assumption that clouds the text. Because this is not a nice story and it's not a kid's story. Uh, It's quite an adult event. And in seeing Christ in this event, I hope today we can understand where we fit into this story more clearly. The story is obviously a large large crowd, try saying that six times quickly, uh, comes to Jerusalem. We're heading up to that wonderful feast of Passover. We've been through the tabernacle period and now we're coming up to Passover and uh, the, the event of last week, Lazarus's raising, obviously that would have spread like wildfire in terms of news, in terms of euphoria and so when this one, the word gets out that he's heading to Jerusalem during Passover the, the pinnacle feast that speaks of the very founding and the liberation of Israel from bondage, then crowds are going to gather with an agenda up here already. And so there's a bunch of people that are following him from Bethany who were there when the day before Lazarus was raised and news has already spread to the capital and so people from the capital come out and you've got these two waves of people who come to see the celebrity Jesus. They are pinning their hopes on him. And uh, we read, not only do they come out with palm branches. I'm getting a little treble here. Is that okay with you? Um, they're getting palm branches uh, and uh, they are waving them, which 
could be to do with the Feast of Tabernacles, but this was, uh, we find this in history, there are coins minted back about 100 years earlier and this, 130 years earlier than this, where there was an uprising in Judea against Romans and there are palm branches on those coins which speak of this uh, defiance of Judah. And I think that's very much playing in the minds of these people. They're there yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna. Can you imagine a crowd of peasants lining the streets of the temple, of the capital where the temple is, and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Not only that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, with the Lord's sanction, even the king of Israel. You can see what they're thinking is about to happen. This is our king. This is a revolutionary Zionist rant. Make Judea great again, Lord. Now, I don't know about you, I'm a bit of a uh, Tour de France tragic and tend to lose a bit of sleep during that time of the year. Tour de France is a bike race. <laughs> and uh, uh, I love watching it both for the, the spectacle of the speed and that incredible athleticism over three weeks and also the, the history that goes with it as they move past different chalets and other French objects. And, and uh, the, the pinnacle of the race really is that last day when really the racing is over and the crowds line the Champs-Élysées, the riders ride past the Arc de Triomphe on their way down to the heart of Paris and the whole streets are lining to welcome their heroes. And you can picture that as Cadell Evans or Groom or one of the heroes with the, the entourage of his companions finally enters the finishing straight. And there they are, they turn around past the Arc de Triomphe and they're coming down athletes, immortals. In this case, they turn, the entourage is there, and Jesus, if he was in the Tour de France, would have been on a trainer bike with trainer wheels and pink ribbons. Because that's how ridiculous he looked and was willing to look on his steed, an unridden colt. You can imagine how smooth the ride was on an unridden colt. Jesus plays the fool, for God's sake, as he enters Jerusalem. He does not confirm their suspicion. He does not confirm their hopes. He is, does not reinforce their bad theology. He is following a different script, which is, we're told what that is, it's from Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That is the script he is following, the script that God the Father has given him. Not the script that is working to make him celebrity. This one is coming to do God's will. There is a paradigm here in this story which we should take to heart, and I hope by the end of this sermon you will have taken to heart, that should affect every pore and muscle in our fibre, that should make us people who are aware of what Christ's page is and what program he sets out to accomplish. Because I see there's a lot of times today that the church 
is more intent on appeasing the ambitions of the crowd than the script of Christ. Many in my job, in my profession, would be all too happy to have people cheering the wrong Christ as long as it built a big church. And that is not the name of this story. It's not the theme. His disciples didn't understand these things and I'm afraid many people in my role do not understand these things either. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the crowds mix. And at the, the end of this section, the Pharisees say to one another, look what's happening. The whole world's going out. Here they'd been intent on destroying him, on destroying Lazarus, but it's just been counterproductive and they've almost totally lost traction with the people. And this guy has stolen their thunder, he's stolen their stage, he's stolen their mic. He is number one in the consciousness of the people, not them. And they're bitter about that. Ironically, there's something odd here that Christ and the high priests both resent the crowd. Now we then read that right in the middle of this kafor, some Greeks come up and they want an audience with Jesus. Greeks! I mean, this is the high time for Jews, the Passover. There isn't a more Jewish time. This is the time to get out all your best clobber and to get to Jerusalem and to, to take part in this feast. And, and these Greeks most likely are God-fearers. These are the best part of Greek culture. They're, they're highbrow, they're well-trained. And there are a lot of people like that who are really attracted to Ju Judaism and, and were really put off by the paganism of their own culture, especially the multiplicity of gods. They were attracted to the monotheism of Judaism and its high ethical code. That is, Judaism seemed to be a good philosophy. And these people were attracted to Jesus and they've heard the crowd, they've heard the gossip, and so they want to check him out before they check him off. And so they seek to get an audience through the disciples. They approach Philip, that's a good bet. Philip's got a Greek name. Maybe he'll be a little bit more sympathetic. And uh, so they approach Philip and they ask for an audience. And uh, Philip isn't quite sure whether he's got the authority to do that. And so he takes this request to the itinerary managers uh, amongst the disciples and Andrew and the boys and says, I mean, you know, should we really do this? I mean, after all, they're Greeks, you know, Gentiles, and this is really... Israel's king, I mean, we put him off. And uh, they decide to go and ask Jesus about it. And at that point, I think ironically, it's the very presence of these Greeks that works like a trigger. And Jesus suddenly does not give them an audience. He realises at that moment that his hour has come. Instead of saying, sure, I'll give you an audience... I'll let them check out my credentials. Jesus knows that this is the hour for the salvation, not just of the Jews, but of the unclean rest. And Jesus goes into battle mode. He comes to understand his hour is upon him. 
Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And instead of giving them a philosophy, he gives them his agenda. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains single, alone, just one grain, one for one. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And I would have think that at this point, the Greeks and the disciples would be going, oh, not another horticulture lesson. This guy and his agriculture, it's just, you know, you ask him a simple question, he goes to gardening. You know, it's a... But Jesus is saying through that parable, this is how you must understand this moment that we are all witnessing. You see, here we have it. The crowd is faced by the light, but they deflect the light. The hoi polloi, the chief priests, reject the light. The disciples want to bask in the light. And the Greeks bring their own light. But Jesus is basically saying, if you really want to be enlightened, you've got to understand the principle of the Dead Sea. I understand from farmers that uh, with a good breed of grain that you, as you plant each seed of wheat, a good breed can bring you 168 new ones. And it's this multiplicative principle that is operating in Jesus' mind here. That he sees his death is essential for the germination of life in the multitudes. And so it must happen. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth, it remains it's one alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying, unlike the crowd, there can be no kingdom without this cross. There will be no liberator without the libation of pouring out his own life. Not only that, but this precedent in history sets the paradigm for the disciples. He goes on and he says in verse 25, Likewise, he should have said, I'll just add that. He says, Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. He must follow my pattern. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. Maybe not the multitudes, but the Father. That is the paradigm for us. If the king had to go to a cross, if his form of liberation came out with the pouring out of his own life, who are we to think that the pattern will be different for us? There can be no fruitfulness, no good life without the good death. Your life, if it is to be authentically Christian, must have the smell of death about it. What an incredible thing to say. But this is revolutionary. Jesus is saying you cannot live the Christian life unless, first of all, a massive revolution that is equivalent to the death of all the good things that life brings takes part in your life. You cannot have your agenda for the good life with a little Jesus tacked on. You cannot laminate Jesus over the definition of 
the decent life, the normal life, the suburban life. It won't work. To follow me, this isn't just for the pastors, this isn't just for the missionaries, and it's not just for the Chinese, this is for us. If you really want to begin the Christian life, you've got to die just like I'm dying. We become united in that. In other words, we'd be working at cross-purposes. I think this principle is the principle that is missing in our churches. Only last night we were having a conversation with dear friends where we could think of the church that we had been part of where the question comes up again and again, perennially, why are we losing our young folk? Why do they go off in careers? Why do they go off in marriages and we lose them? They're part of the church and then they're not. They've got something better to do. It's because we never teach them this principle. That to be and to begin and to start and to progress in the Christian life implies a revolution must occur. You must die. You cannot do the Christ thing without it. Now, the good life, in our world's eye, it has to do with those big four agenda items. Career, marriage, mortgage, and then the cruise. That's evidently what life's about. I'm not talking about bad people. I'm talking about good people with noble ambitions. That's the good life, isn't it? And you hope for the best for your kids, don't you? How different we are to the world at that point. I can remember many years ago, or not that many, but uh, when I was first on the career market, I'd actually decided already that I would head into the ministry of the word and evangelism. I was involved with parachurch work in those days. And um, I, I had two options. I'd had two letters come in the mail within a day of each other. One was an invitation to go to Monash University to, to do a diploma of education and become a teacher. Now, that was quite remarkable because I wasn't an exceptionally good student and places were very limited. The government had cut back on education places, seeing the future, I guess. But uh, they, we weren't going to have children in the future, I don't know. But, but uh, I got into the bed and I thought, boy, that's remarkable because I wasn't expecting that. And then the next day I got another letter from the federal government saying I had an interview from the Treasury to become an economist in Canberra. And I had to go along for an interview in the top of Russell Street. And uh, I waited outside, and then finally I was summoned into this, this room with a big table. And uh, it was before the word geek was invented. But there were at least two of them in this room. <laughs> and these guys were sitting there opposite, and I remember behind them was a very difficult interview. One, because I'd totally forgotten nearly everything I learned about economics as soon as I walked in the room. But there was this large window behind them, and, and these people were sort of silhouetted. I could see their auras as, they, uh, as I looked out on the city behind them. I could see the MCG down in the distance, and I was finding it very difficult to concentrate. And it wasn't going very well at all, this interview. And uh, I, uh, I remember them finally asking, it was the day after the budget had been handed down. And all good economists start real late that night to listen to the budget. I didn't. <laughs> and then they asked me that question. I could see it coming. What did you think of last night's budget? <laughs> and I thought, uh, do I 
I have to admit, I fudged it. And I said, well, I, thinking, you know, we had a bit of inflation, but we didn't want to send the economy into a spin. I said, well, I'd summarise it as mildly contractionary. Well, you would have thought I had given them the elixir of life. They turned to each other. They said, it's mild, isn't it? They said, yeah, it's not too heavy. It's not maybe good. But it is contractionary. Oh, yes, but it is contractionary. And off they went. They had a conversation amongst themselves for the next five minutes. They thought it was brilliant. And I'm thinking here, I don't think I want to do this job. <laughs> anyway, I remember going out of the, the room thinking, well, they'll never call me, only to have a phone call the next day to say, you're wanted in Canberra. <laughs> and I think that was the start of the recession we were meant to have. <laughs> and... Uh, but the thing that struck me is I went back to my friends and I said, now I've got two offers. How do I choose between teaching or economist? And to a man, all my evangelical union, Christian union friends said, you've got to go with the bucks. If you've got this opportunity, you'd be dumb to go teaching. Not one person said to me, which would be more formative? Which would equip you for the service of the ministry of the word? You see, though I was in a Christian context, they're dancing by the world's script. Different piper, different tune, different dance. Friends of mine years ago, uh, dear friends, we, uh, we were, I was involved in their, their wedding and uh, um, it was great just to watch them through the years. We sort of had children at around the same time and went through all those stage of life things. And um, wisely they got into the, the uh, real estate market early and actually they bought this house right opposite the munitions factory in Footscray. Not a very attractive street. In fact, it wasn't the best house on the worst street. It was probably the worst house on the worst street in Footscray. But they worked real hard and they put a lick of paint on this house and they got rid of the mice and all that. And the, the, the cupboards were replaced. And over the years, they stripped the thing bare and put all their sweat and that into this, this place. And it was really a decent-looking house, a lovely garden. And along the way, both husband and wife got promotions in their careers and the husband became, got into the managerial level in retail and uh, the wife was doing well and uh, all their friends that they used to know in uh, Christian circles around Footscray had moved down the track to a nice new suburb out of Essendon and the pressure was on come and join us yeah, that's the script and I was so pleased when they got together with us around Christmas. It was a regular thing we did. I said, well, what's going to happen with this move? And they said these simple words. It's only a little thing, really. It's a simple little story. They said, well, we've decided to stay here. In fact, today, 40 years on, they're still there. And they said, we like 
when missionaries come home on furlough, to have put money aside to give them a really good holiday. They can't afford it. That's what we like to do. If we move to Essendon, we'll never be able to do that. In fact, that's a little decision. But it tells me that there is enormous revolution has taken place in those people. They've broken free from the script of decency and the good life. They have a different vision. They're dancing to a different tune. The revolution has happened. They're walking the way of Christ. And those little decisions have meant that in life they've been able to cope with an enormous amount and they've been able to be followers of Jesus and go where he calls and be what he wants them to be because they're not dancing to the world's tune. It's critical that we ourselves assess whether the revolution has ever really happened ourselves. Why do young adults fall away? Maybe they don't fall away, maybe they never left the old script. The revolution dancing to the new script must become central. Well, at that point, the Lord says, in verse 27, he breaks into this little soliloquy where he's just surrounded by noise and crowd and misunderstanding, and he goes inside. He says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. You know, I, I think it would have helped if John had put uh, the words, those two little words, as if, as the teenagers would say. Father, save me from this hour, as if. This is the reason why I've come. For this purpose I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And look what heaven responds with. The heavens cannot contain their joy to see the Son of God committed to the divine script amidst all these alluring opportunities around him. And heaven, spontaneously, the Father brings forth his, his voice and he says, I've glorified it, I've glorified it again. The crowd goes, what on earth was that? It's a little bit like being at Flinders Street Station when the announcement comes over. You don't know if you're meant to get on a bus or go to Richmond. It's just, yeah. What was that? <laughs> They don't understand it. Some think an angel's spoken to him. And Jesus says to them now, he comes out of himself, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. He didn't need to hear this. He was already committed. This is for you. Now is the judgment of this world. This is the now moment where all that this world stands for is going to be judged by God, swept away. There is a new order coming. There is a new rule coming the kingdom of God this is the judgment of this world is coming the ruler of this world will be cast out and I think you've got a picture that Jesus is getting wound up here and he is really not looking towards the cross with trepidation this is a time where he is bracing at the bit waiting for the barrier to lift so he can charge towards the fray now is the judgment of this world now is the ruler of this world will be cast out when I'm lifted up which is a euphemism for the cross, and they all understand it, I'll draw all people to myself, even these Greeks. They've reminded him that this is a world-size agenda that he is on. And he said this to show by what kind of death he is going. So the crowd asked him, hold on, just a minute there, Jesus. 
and, and, and they want to hose him down a bit. We've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. I mean, I'm not sure where in the Old Testament they're referring to that. But their idea of Messiah uh, is different. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Uh, who is this Son of Man? Like, what sort of Son of Man are you talking about here? And particularly, this is the guy who's just defeated death and risen Lazarus in the last couple of days. This fellow should be talking about eternal life. We like that message. Cross? <laughs> not too happy about the cross. Come on. That's not why we're here. Now, come on, dance to the tune. Who is this son of man? Jesus has said to them, and he brings it to this point, the light He's always referring to himself as the light. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness doesn't know where he's going. He might live a long life, but it's a lost life. While you have the life, believe in the light that you might become sons of light. While you have the light, Believe in the light that you might become the sons of light. With this verse, we need to conclude. But it's fascinating to note, he says, while you have me, the revelation of God himself, believe, and the tense is continuous, believe and go on believing, make this your way of life, totally saturated with me alone, focused upon me, that you might become an instantaneous verb at that moment, like that, a son and daughter of God, a son of light. The very characteristics which I have will become yours instantly when you believe. This is an imperative that Jesus gives us all, which just doesn't work in his day when he was incarnate in the flesh. It works in our day when his presence brings light to you. And I've got to say here, it's my responsibility before this same Jesus, lest you sit in this church year in, year out, assuming you are a Christian because you hang around with a mob like this. Lest you assume that because you don't cheat on your tax and defraud your neighbour, that somehow that's okay and that's a Christian. To be a Christian is to rip up the old script and to be able to say to the Lord, wherever you go, I dance to your tune, whatever that is. It is the revolution that must have happened. Has that happened? Have you died to the identity that all your friends and all the world, your boss, and all the agendas in this world want to give you and just are you free to follow Christ. It's a world of difference in that revolutionary moment when you say, I believe. You're saying, I follow your script. And at that moment, you have a destiny to become like Jesus. You cannot become like Jesus until the revolution happens until you get down off the throne of your life, until you bow the knee to him as Lord. Why do the young people leave the church? Well, they're in the building, but were they in the church? 
old people, young people, middle-aged people. Jesus gives us the imperative that if he has through this week, through this sermon, through this period, if he has revealed himself to you as Lord, you must respond to it. You don't have him forever. There is no obligation on the spirit of Jesus Christ to continually manifest Jesus to you. That's not part of the deal. This is not something you can put off till a day when you're ready to follow Jesus because you can only see the terms of trade when the spirit is giving you the light to see it. And he doesn't have to hang around. There can be no tomorrow. It's all or nothing and it's now or never. If you understand that Jesus is the Lord who died for you and calls you to bow the knee to him for the rest of your life, you must respond directly now. Don't go home and think about it. Don't go away and think, well, I'll weigh up my terms because you can only see that by the miracle of revelation in your heart. And tomorrow, if his spirit is withdrawn, you would be just like one of the crowd, blind to who he is. There is nothing as tragic as someone who almost becomes the real deal. Nothing is sad. So if you are a real Christian, if the revolution has happened, if you've ripped up the old script and accepted God's script, nothing to worry about. I'm going to say to you, only you know where you really stand this morning. And though the hour be late, this is far more important of eternal significance that you resolve this issue while you walk in the light, while you can see, because tomorrow darkness comes as sure as night follows day. Don't go home today without resolving that issue if the revolution hasn't happened. Let that little moment happen and your destiny will be secure. A son, a daughter of Jesus Christ and you'll walk in the light forever. Bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord, our God, bear witness against us and for us this day. We know we step into this place and this room. We bring nothing. We have nothing to commend us. We often slip into our own sense of importance and want to follow our own agendas and then we're disappointed that you don't help us through with those things. But Lord, this day we just simply say to you, Lord, you have our affection, but more than that, you have our wills, you have our heart. You are the one who calls the tune, who writes the script. And this day we want to say, we see this, we acknowledge this. Direct us, we pray, that we might follow in the path of the cross. For your kingdom's sake we pray, in Jesus' name.
Thank you, Jeff. That's a challenge to me. Um, each day as we make decisions, are we looking to God's face or the temporal thing? So together we're going to sing, um, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. So if you'll stand um, with us. And I just, yeah, this is my prayer and I hope it's your prayer too. Let's stand. And a community care offering plate will be coming through during the song, but don't feel obligated to, to give. Thank you. Thank you. 